given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we do acknowledge You, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the one true God, not only of Israel but of all the earth. We bless You for the privilege that we have of worshiping. We bless You for the privilege we have of throughout our lives, 24-7, serving You. And Father, we thank You for the stewardship that You have entrusted to us, not only of the Scriptures and of finances, but Father, of our health, our minds, our labors, and we desire these things to all bring glory to You. As we listen to Your Word now, we pray that uh, it would be something that would uh, stir uh, up meekness within us and uh, that You would continue that good work that You have begun. We bless You in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the leadership journal, there was a cartoon that had a guy in the back of the church shaking the pastor's hand, and he was telling the pastor, powerful sermons, pastor, thoughtful, well-researched, I can always see myself in them, and I want you to knock it off. (laughs) Well, this past week, I got quite a different uh, response. Instead of telling me to knock it off, uh, I've had people say, yes, they really saw themselves in the sermon last week, particularly the pride section, and they wanted me to dig deeper and to show how to put on the opposite of that. And so today, uh, we're going to be looking at the grace of meekness and how to put that on. And I want to, first of all, distinguish between humility and weakness. Uh, Those two words have different connotations, even though they have the same denotation. If you don't know what that means, it means they have slightly different nuances of meaning, but they're pointing to the same thing. You could call them Siamese twins. They're stuck together. Uh, Where you have one, you're always going to have uh, the other. Jesus said, I am meek and humble in heart. Matthew 11, verse 29. So even though you can't separate them, you can distinguish between the two of those. So where humility refers to the absence of pride and a lowliness, a sense of one's own lowliness, that's why it's sometimes translated as lowly. I'm weak and humble, or I'm weak, meek and, not weak, meek and humble, or meek and lowly. Uh, You have different translations like that. So whereas that describes humbleness, meekness shows how you get there. It is someone who has been completely tamed and is in submission to God's will. And so in one sense, meekness is a more radical grace. Uh, Wherever you find uh, meekness, you're going to find spadefuls of uh, humility. Uh, And so if you want to even look at it in terms of order, there is faith and uh, there is uh, meekness and there is humility. They, they, They flow in that direction. And I think it would be helpful to start with what Christ meant when He said, I am meek. I am meek and lowly. I think that Jesus breaks all of the stereotypes that people have described of meekness. Is a meek person a person who gets along with everyone? That's definition some people give give to it. I don't think that quite fits because Jesus didn't get along with the Pharisees too well. Um... Is it a picture of a person who didn't talk very much and who was very timid? Well, again, it definitely doesn't fit the case of Christ. And if he is the definition of meekness, we've got to say, doesn't mean the person who's timid, shy, uh, reserved. In fact, there are some people who are shy and reserved and withdrawn who do not have very much meekness at all. Is it a person who is easygoing? Well, again, you'd have to look at Jesus and say, he's pretty intense sometimes. Boy, he'd make me uncomfortable if I was around Jesus. He was really intense. So I don't think if he's the definition of meekness that you can say it is a lack of intensity. Is it a person who rides the fence and wants peace at any cost? Well, again, you'd have to say no way. Uh, He breaks the stereotypes. Is it a nice person? Well, there are some places where Jesus was nice, but uh, I don't think the money changers thought he was very nice when he drove them out of the out of the temple, is it a tactful person? And again, you look at Christ and it seems like at times he lacked all tact. He didn't. I mean, he knew where to do it and where not to do it, but he was a straight shooter. And yet Scripture is quite clear. He was meek 
and lowly. And I think the modern definition of meekness, like so many other definitions, is a humanistic one that's been crafted in our own minds. We make God in our own image, and we try to recraft what the Scriptures talk about in our own image. It's just like, uh, you know, the what would Jesus do movement. Uh, they're, they're not looking to the Scriptures to define what would Jesus would do. They think, okay, what would Jesus do in this situation? Well, I think He would do such and such, and it's just coming from their own mind. And it's similar to the precious moments Christianity, you know, that has the mighty cherubim angels pictured as these little cute little babies with rosy cheeks. No! If you saw a cherubim, you would fall on your face terrified. And so we've got to get a, a, a definition of meekness from the Scripture. If we're to put off pride that we looked at last week, then we need to understand the grace of meekness. Unlike the term humble, the Greek term for meek, praus, always assumes great strength under control. As some people say, meekness does not mean weakness. It always implies that there is strength there. Lowliness does not necessarily, but meekness always implies strength under control. It is a forbearing power that has the ability to resist and yet yields anyway. Sometimes it's translated as gentle, and yet it can describe a warrior who, yes, is gentle with his wife, but is anything but gentle with his enemies. It can describe a powerful stallion who has been so trained that he is gentle with a child. A child can lead him, and yet he's a powerful stallion. This is a word that can be translated as humble, and yet it can be a humble person like King David, a great man. Okay, so always is implied strength, but it's a gentle strength. Second, and we're going in depth on this definition of meekness because we've got to make sure we've got clearly defined in our mind what this means. Second, the Greek word has the idea of forbearance. And that ought to, uh, in this sense, it's, it's describing, you know, God himself. Uh, twice it does that. Psalm 18, verse 35 describes God as meek. And that ought to give you a little bit of a clue when you're looking, if God is meek, then we need to make sure we don't define meekness in a way that's going to preclude God or the Lord Jesus Christ. And it gives us a different idea of gentleness because God could blast us off the planet if He so chose, but God has self-control and forbearance. It is translated as yielding or gracious, and yet the yielding and graciousness is not just a, a wishy-washiness because it describes a person who knows exactly what goal he is going to achieve, and he pursues that goal relentlessly. So there's a third nuance to this term that helps us to fill out the picture. The Greek dictionary says, it is not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. And largely, it's because the person's not preoccupied with himself at all. He's wrapped up in the concerns of another. And that's why this is so tightly connected with humility and it's so far removed from pride. Now, the next point is, I think, one of the most intriguing usages of this term. The Greek word praus is used to describe tamed animals. Let me quote from Barclay's commentary. In Greek, praus is used in one special sense. It is used for a beast which has been tamed. A horse which was once wild, but which has become obedient to the bit and the bridle, is praus. Now herein lies the secret to the meaning of praus. There is gentleness in praus, but behind the gentleness there is strength of steel. For the supreme characteristic of the man who is praus, the man who is meek, is that he is the man who is under perfect control. It is not a spineless characteristic, a sentimental fondness, a passive quietism. It is a strength under control. Well, you can see, given that definition, it beautifully describes the Lord Jesus Christ. It beautifully describes Moses, who was said to be the, the, the meekest man uh, back in his day. Both had borne the yoke uh, upon them of God's will. Both had harnessed their abilities to God's will. Another author adds an important dimension. He says, the use of the word in classical Greek was used to describe an animal that had been domesticated and whose strength is channeled in a certain direction. It is using one's strength, energy, and abilities for a cause which is greater than self. 
Now, let me repeat that last sentence because I think this is really of the essence of, of meekness no matter where uh, it is used. He says, "...it is using one's strength, energy, and abilities for a cause which is greater than self." Point E really is of the essence of meekness. Let me give two more definitions quickly. Here's how Vine's Dictionary describes it. Described negatively, meekness is the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. It is equanimity of spirit. Equanimity means, you know, the composure of spirit. You're not ruffled easily. It is equanimity of spirit that is neither elated nor cast down simply because it is not occupied with self itself, self at all. Now, I think you can understand why Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. A meek person who is preoccupied with uh, serving the interests of other people is going to be blessed by God with dominion. Now, just think of it in terms of, the, of a wild horse. A wild stallion is not useful to the master as long as he is intent on serving his own interests. Okay? We are not useful to God's kingdom and His dominion as long as we lack meekness. And so a person who lacks meekness by definition is a proud person who has God resisting him. Here's how R.J. Rushdoony pulls together the shades of meaning in describing the meekness of Moses in the Old Testament. The meek are the redeemed whom God has burdened, oppressed, and broken to harness so that they are tamed and workable. God subjected Moses to a more rigorous discipline than any other believer of his day, and Moses accepted that oppression, grew in terms of it, and became disciplined and strong. Now, let me just stop there for a moment because some of you are really feeling done in and oppressed by the way other people treat you. And you might be thinking of this, is God developing meekness within me just as He did uh, within Moses? Just think of that. He goes on to say here, Hence, Moses was the meekest man of his age. Meekness is thus not mousiness, but disciplined strength in and under God. The blessed meek are the tamed of God, those harnessed to His law word and to His calling, who shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5.5 5. The blessed meek are those who submit to God's dominion, have therefore dominion over themselves, and are capable of exercising dominion over the earth. They therefore inherit the earth. Now, when we've taken all of those definitions together, you can see there is no way you can get meekness without faith. Um, to be tamed, you have to trust your master. Uh, to be interested in God's interests more than your own takes faith that God's going to take care of you. Otherwise, it would be suicidal to do the things God calls us to do. Uh, to use your energies in a cause that is greater than your own takes a vision of faith in God's purposes. And so faith is often presented as being the polar opposite of pride. In fact, uh, John Piper sees not uh, meekness, but uh, faith is the opposite of pride. And you can understand why. Where pride shows self-reliance, what does faith do? By definition, it's reliance upon God. Where pride considers itself above instruction, faith is always looking to the Word of God. It's looking to God's instruction. That's where faith is built up. Where pride is insubordinate, faith is submission par excellence. Where pride takes credit for what God has done, faith deflects praise to God. Where pride exults in being made much of, faith knows that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. There's no way we could take credit for it. And so it's not surprising that the greatest men of faith down through history have also been the meekest men. Uh, and so those three graces really necessitate each other. If we're going to be rid of pride, then by faith we need to put on meekness which will result in humility. You could just see those as, as layers. You've got faith, and then meekness and humility. Now, having described what meekness is, uh, let's get motivated on wanting to have this. And I think we can get motivated if we see all of the blessings that flow uh, from meekness. And we, we should expect this. If pride is resisted by God, then we would expect that there's going to be blessings that will flow if we put on the opposite, meekness. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Blessed are the meek. We are blessed. The meek shall inherit the earth. Meekness is related to success and dominion. Just as an example, 
It was because Joseph had learned meekness to such a large degree that everything he touched was prospered. And we're talking about his, his uh, manual labor and his administration and all of those things. Uh, his meekness enabled him to take dominion by God's blessing. So that's one of the things. Here's another blessing. Psalm 22, verse 6 says, The meek shall eat and be satisfied. Now, commentators point out, it's talking about the Lord's table. Psalm 22 in the first half is talking about the, the death of Christ. And then the second half of the psalm talks about what flows from that death, our communion with Him and the empowering. But there he's talking about coming to the Lord's table. And as I mentioned earlier, proud people can come to the table Sunday after Sunday and get nothing out of it. They're not satisfied. And yet the meek come to the Lord's table and they are incredibly filled, incredibly satisfied. So they're given a capacity to enjoy God's spiritual blessings. Let me ask you a question. Are the means of grace, whether it's the Lord's table or prayer or Scripture or other things like that, are the means of grace dry and boring and dusty or do they satisfy you? If they're dry and dusty, seek meekness. Seek meekness. You will be blessed indeed. Here's another blessing. Psalm 25, verse 9 says, The meek will he guide... Injustice, and the whole psalm is talking about the rich guidance that God pours into the lives of those who have been tamed of Him. There is no point in guiding a person who is wild and rebellious. You know, in a horse, you don't go out into the battlefield with a wild and rebellious horse. You put him into the corral, right, where he's going to learn to be following the bit and the bridle and following the commands of the Master. But the meek He will guide. And so the psalm says, Show me Your ways, O Lord. Teach me Your paths. Lead me in Your truth and teach me. The meek He guides in justice and the meek He teaches His way. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him and He will show them His covenant. This is one of the greatest, most precious blessings that the Lord has bestowed in my life. It is personal guidance from His hand. And I dare say that I don't have more guidance than I presently do because I probably need to grow a whole lot more in meekness. The two go hand in hand. The Puritan, William Bridge, said, if you lay yourself at Christ's feet, that would be meekness, right? Laying yourself at Christ's feet. If you lay yourself at Christ's feet, He will take you into His arms. So do you want intimacy? Do you want guidance? Seek meekness. Here's another blessing. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Psalm 149, verse 4. Or as some translate it, He will adorn them with victory. Now, where the proud keep falling and stumbling, the meek find victory after victory after victory. Do you want victory in your life? Seek meekness. That's the way it's going to come. God has chosen to bless the meek with salvation from their sin, with victory uh, in their lives. And again, we would expect that if God resists the proud, what's He going to do to the opposite? He's going to help them. Isaiah 29, verse 19 says, The meek also shall increase their joy. Are you miserable? <laughs> Seek meekness. Because many times we are robbed of joy simply because we are not meek in our responses to God's providences. Here's how Christ words it in Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus describes the untamed, unmeek person as being very miserable. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And here is the irony. He's saying that the wild oxen out there that are idealized, you know, on the TV program, born free, you know, this is just the way they ought to be. Christ says, ironically, they're the ones who are the most sick and weary and heavy laden. And it's those who have been tamed and who are wearing the yoke that the master provides for and he cares for them. Okay? Many people think that disobedience to Christ is freedom. But when we fail to be the tamed of God, like untamed animals, we end up being torn and bruised and mangy and ill. You look at the coat of any wild animal, it's disgusting. Uh, you know, full of ticks and, and sometimes sores, and it stinks. You know, it's not very pleasant uh, to look at the coat of a wild animal. They're usually not the healthiest of animals. They die young. And Christ says that the only way to find fulfillment, rest, and satisfaction 
is by being domesticated, as it were, to have the yoke of meekness, being tamed by God. And so Isaiah 29 says, the meek shall increase their joy. Now let me give you one last benefit, and that is that we benefit from meekness because it uh, gives us liberty in our calling gives us liberty in our labors, liberty in our service for Christ. Now, it may seem a little bit odd. Now, wait a shake. I thought you were talking about blessings. Now you're talking about labor and service. But it gives us liberty and joy in doing that service. I had a horse out in Ethiopia that I think illustrates this quite well. He was anything but meek. Um, when we first got the horse, he wasn't too bad. Uh, but he hung around the mules a lot, and he learned a lot of bad habits from those mules. And this horse, any time we'd come to try to saddle him, he'd run, well, first of all, he'd run away, but you'd get him in a corner. Then he'd run right at, at you and try to bite you. And uh, he would try to buck you off. He'd try to brush your leg against a, a tree, try to go under a low-hanging branch and knock you off. He was a miserable horse, and we had to do a lot of work with him to retrain him uh, into the way that um, he needed to walk. Now, if you wanted to gallop, you had a hard time with him because he was slower than molasses. Um, it didn't matter if you used the hippo hide uh, whip. You know, you dug your heels in. He just didn't want to run. Uh, the only way it seemed like you could get him to go anywhere is by really manhandling him with his bridle. Well, we learned other ways of, of, of retaming him. But if you wanted to gallop, you had to walk slowly, you know, about 10 minutes away, and then gallop home where he thinks he's going to get his oats. <laughs> and it's so like a lot of Christians, you know, they're only motivated if they can see an immediate benefit in their lives, but they don't take delight in the galloping themselves. So anyway, my horse would go most places at a reluctant walk, and you really could not get him. He was too stubborn to learn. It was almost as if he would rather be miserable, and he was sometimes, he'd rather be miserable than to be obedient. And many times we Christians are like that horse. Yeah, we obey, but we do so so grudgingly, and it's only after we've been whipped a few times. We drag our feet. It's not from our heart. Every ounce of strength is not in the Master's disposal. We do not move to the slightest touch of the reins on our neck, and consequently, we miss out on the joy of galloping with the wind. We miss out on the joy of having the Master's caress on our neck and saying, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Okay, we trade in the happiness of kingdom living for the misery of discipline. And I say that because God's in the business of making tamed Christians. Okay, uh, Useful Christians, meek Christians. Listen to Psalm 32. It describes the meekness that we are called to with a metaphor of an untrained horse. Do not be like the horse or like the mule which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. He's enveloped like a sea in mercy. So there's another blessing that he has. The previous verse describes a meekness this way. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. So there's no needs for reins for this horse. This horse, he just sees the master's eye. And he's off running that way. He knows exactly, he's in tune with the Master and what the Master wants to do. And what a joy it is to ride a horse that is totally in tune with your riding style. And what a joy it is for the Lord when he's working with tamed, meek Christians, ready to do his bidding. It delights him, and he in turn delights us. It ushers us into the closest fellowship with God, according to John 14. He loves to bless the meek. And so, if you're proud, what God's going to say is, well, I just can't use you out there. I can't be close to you. I'm, I, I, I got more important things to do than constantly messing around with your bucking. I'm going to put you in the corral, and we're going to go through some bronco busting. And that's exactly what many of us seem to be engaged in all the time, is bronco, bronco busting from the Lord. Now, this brings us up to how do we gain this meekness? We want the blessings... But then we recognize pride just seems to be everywhere in our lives and it can be so discouraging. Uh, before we look at some specific steps, I want to point out, first of all, we've got to be Christ-centered in our approach on this. In Matthew 11:29, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. 
He's the one who gives us meekness. He said, learn from me. Not from Phil Kaiser or other. Learn from me. Uh, Jesus Himself had to learn meekness in His life from the Father. And I think uh, Luke 2 verse uh, 51 implies that uh, His subjection to, the, to His parents even was a demonstration of meekness. When He was 12 years old, He said, Did you not know that I must be about my Father's business? He, even at that age, was not wanting to be off while doing His own thing. No, I must be about my Father's business. In John 5.19, He said, most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. That is speaking of radical meekness, a total submission and yieldedness to the Father's will. And we are to learn from Him that same kind of meekness. By the way, this relates to our parenting. Because if we're to imitate Jesus and He learned His meekness from the Father, there's this modeling. So if our children never see a meekness of how we submit to authorities, how do we expect them to learn uh, Christ through us? But we do need to direct their eyes to Jesus. John 5, verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 8, verse 28. I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Jesus was meek. He was our model. And if Zephaniah says that the meek of the earth must seek more meekness, because he already calls them meek, and then he commands them to continue to seek meekness, it implies meekness is something we grow in, but it implies meekness comes from outside of ourselves. Colossians 3.12 says meekness is put on like a garment. In other words, it's not from us. It's given from above. James 13 says it comes from above. Matthew 11.28 says it must be learned from Jesus. So, as we're going through these points, realize that even though these are practical suggestions on how we can do this, our focus has always got to be on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, point B. Before we can seek more meekness from the Lord, we have to be captured by His grace. And the taming process begins at regeneration where God takes human wills that are wild and rebellious and He captures them and He corrals them by His grace. And from that moment on, he begins the taming process. Now, uh, Hosea chapter 11 describes that taming process with these words. It says that he draws us with gentle cords and with bands of love. Hosea 11 verse 4. He's talking about training a wild animal. Okay, He draws us with gentle cords and bands of love. He guarantees he's going to tame the elect, but he does so without breaking their wills. There are two ways you can train... An animal. My dad was a bronco buster when he was uh, younger up in Alberta. And back in those days, uh, most of the farmers used uh, horses for the plowing, for all of their work up there. And the farmers really liked the horses my dad uh, trained because they had more life in them. They were totally uh, submissive, but they had more life. He said there were some people who would break, you know, they'd beat, they'd starve, they would break the will of the horse, and they were just listless. And um, that's not the way God works with us. God draws us with gentle cords, bands of love. So it starts at regeneration, and every true believer has at least some meekness. Otherwise, they would never have bowed their neck before God's sovereign grace. Right? That's a hard thing, to bow your neck before God's grace. But point C indicates you can't be content with being in God's corral of grace. Yes, that's where we start our salvation. That's where the training begins. But God wants us to graduate from the corral and to begin galloping and running in the battlefield. Once we're trained, meekness is to characterize our whole life. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Christ wants us to get harnessed up. He wants us to bear the yoke of service for Him. And I want you to especially notice whose yoke is this that we're bearing? It's not our yoke. It's His yoke. Okay, We take His yoke upon ourselves. In other words, He's already yoked. He's doing the working. He doesn't make us pull the weight by ourselves. The incarnation was not to burden us down. It was to lift us up. And so Christ continues to be the one who carries the yoke. 
but now He invites us to be in harness with Him. That's just an amazing concept. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. That's astonishing. That's absolutely astonishing. We are harnessed together with Him, so it's all of grace. So step one, we need to be saved by grace. Step two, we need to continue to walk by grace. The third essential step to developing meekness is recognizing pride wherever it exists and repenting of it, turning from it, crucifying it. Treat anything related to pride as being kryptonite. You who saw the Superman movie, you know that the kryptonite you know, just instantly makes um, uh, Superman totally weak. And pride is kryptonite. People who have been strong in the Lord, they've allowed pride to creep up and it's destroyed many a man, woman, and child in biblical history. Just as an example, what was it that made Samson weak? That's what Delilah was looking for. What's the kryptonite, you know, that's going to make Samson weak? And people think, well, it was his, uh, you know, his fornication. But actually, he was strong after his fornication. I mean, that was part of the process that led him down into, into his trouble. But he continued to be strong even after he had fornicated a number of times. That really was not the kryptonite because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It was pride that was the kryptonite and that kept him from cleansing of God's grace. It was pride that kept him from uh, realizing he needed God every moment of his life. He began to think, hey, even with sin, I'm strong. I can get away with this. He thought he could do it on his own. In fact, he didn't even recognize that the Lord had departed from him. Now, in your outlines, I give a chart that was developed by Nancy DeMoss that contrasts proud people with broken people. And I would encourage you to use this as homework and um, just read maybe two, three lines every day to your family and talk about the, the dangers of pride, the importance of... Uh, having meekness so that God will bless His people. Describe in detail examples of pride in your own life and uh, describe examples in their lives, but try to get them to see it for themselves. Here's one of the things you're probably going to find. Maybe our family is unusual, but when we went through this chart with our kids, whoa, they were very quick to see it in all the other kids. Oh yeah, I saw him do this and the other thing. And uh, even when they're very small, boy, they're sharp seeing pride in other people. We could not get them to see it in their own lives. But this can be a very helpful chart to be praying through and saying, look, every one of us has pride and we've got to put it off. We've got to recognize this. Let's pray to God that He would show us this kryptonite that's going to weaken us and destroy us. Ask for understanding eyes. Okay, now once you see pride, you've gotten to the place where you see it, then you're just overwhelmed. You see it everywhere. It's so pervasive. It'll grieve you to no end. You try to kill it and you think, oh good, I got rid of my pride. And boy, you're proud of the fact that you killed your pride. And it just comes up everywhere. Uh, and so let me end with some practical tips. Putting off pride, putting on meekness. As um, the last tip says, it's a lifelong battle. These are some of the things that have helped me over the years and maybe you can come up with some other things that uh, will help you. First of all, Pray that God would help you to see your pride and to develop a hatred for pride, to despise the pride that is in your own life. And you know pride is there because the Bible says pride is in every human heart. And so if you see yourself, I'm not really a proud person, as I once saw myself, you, re you need to realize you have got pride in boatloads. And it's just blinding your to your sin. It's blinding you to the presence of pride in your life. We said last week that pride is like bad breath. Everybody else knows you got it. You're the only one that doesn't recognize it. Pride is like that. We cannot recognize it. So you've got to pray for illumination and ask, Lord, I want to see the pride. I want to hate the pride. Give me a hatred for it. Second tip is to meditate on the attributes of God and the glory of God. Pride is weakened when we see how awesome God really is. The Puritan writer Thomas Watson said, a sight of God's glory humbles. The stars vanish when the sun appears. So he's likening pride in our accomplishment to the stars. But I tell you, those stars seem like nothing when you begin to see the glory and the majesty of the sun, of God's greatness. So he says, a sight of God's glory humbles. The stars vanish when the sun appears. 
Now, this is certainly true when you begin to consider God's sovereignty, His majesty, His omnipresence, and some of His other attributes. Here's, here's just a very quick exercise. You can do it in 20, 30 seconds. You feel pride creeping up. This is maybe one exercise you can go through. Just imagine yourself as a tiny speck in the city of Omaha, and the city of Omaha is a tiny speck on our planet, and our planet is being not that big in our solar system, in our solar system, a tiny speck in our galaxy, and our galaxy just a speck in the vastness of this universe, and God created all that in six days? It makes us feel very, very small, but we need to feel small if we're to develop meekness. Or take the attributes of self-existence and self-sufficiency. This is the doctrine of aseity that I preached on some time back. Here's what R.C. Sproul said about that. The grand difference between a human being and a supreme being is precisely this. Apart from God, I cannot exist. Apart from me, God does exist. God does not need me in order for me to be. This is the difference between what we call a self-existent being and a dependent being. We are dependent. We are fragile. We cannot live without air, without water, without food. No human being has the power of being within himself. We are like flowers that bloom and then wither and fade. This is how we differ from God. God does not wither. God does not fade. God is not fragile. There is nothing like a vision of God's greatness to humble our pride and to begin to stir up that meekness within us. A third thing that I recommend is to meditate deeply on the cross of Jesus Christ. The more you understand of the wrath that was poured out upon Jesus as your substitute, that you deserve that wrath, the more it will humble your pride and make you give praise to Him. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, there is only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Nothing else can do it. When I see that I am a sinner, that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I am humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us this spirit of humility. Well, there are some other things that can give you humility, but it is an important one. Fourth remedy for pride are the doctrines of grace or what I call full-blown Calvinism. Why is it that predestination is resisted so much? Because predestination humbles us. It goes contrary to pride. It makes us realize we are totally beholden to God and His sovereign mercy. Uh, there is nothing that is so humbling and pride-destroying as the five points of Calvinism. The flesh rebels against it. But let me tell you something. When you once embrace those doctrines, suddenly the sweetness of God fills your soul and you begin to recognize all of the blessings He raises us you know, to the status of sons and daughters, to princes seated at the right hand of, of Christ, uh, being uh, kept in Christ. And I found that throughout my life, the doctrines of grace have done a marvelous work of crucifying my pride. Let me just give you some examples. Total depravity means that anything good that is in me did not come from me. It came from God. Where else could it come from if I'm totally uh, depraved? So... Uh, scripture says He works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. If He didn't, there'd be nothing but total depravity there. Unconditional election means God gets all the glory for my salvation. He did not predestine us because He said, Oh, wow, Phil's got some really good things. I think I'm going to choose Him. He did not predestine us because He saw faith in us. No, Scripture says the very faith by which we receive justification is a gift of God. He chose who to give faith to. That is a humbling doctrine. Limited atonement makes some people think, well, God is not fair. But when we are meek, we realize that saving anyone by condemning the Lord Jesus Christ is not fair. He could justly send us all to hell just like He very justly determined to send all fallen angels to hell. He decided, I'm not going to save any of those angels. But men, yeah, I think I'm going to, for my glory, save some people from among them. He didn't offer salvation to the angels. 
the phrase in Revelation that he redeemed us out of every tribe and nation is humbling. Why did he redeem me and not redeem the rest of the people in that nation? He redeemed us out of every nation. People think it's not fair for God to love Jacob and hate Esau, but when God tames us and makes us meek, we realize it is an incredible miracle for God to have loved Jacob at all. It's a miracle of God's grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's what meekness does. It makes our hearts overflow in praise to Him. Irresistible grace does not mean that sinners do not resist God. Far from it. That's all they know to do. But it means God's grace, His saving grace, conquers that resistance. And apart from grace, that His uh, irresistible grace, we could not be saved. So irresistible grace destroys the pagan idol of free will. Pagan grace sweetly changes our wills, sweetly draws us uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ And as Hosea says, he does it with gentle bands of grace, cords of love. Irresistible grace is a comfort to us. Why? Because by His grace, we're already meek. He's already given us some meekness. The bronco buster has been training us uh, in the harness. Perseverance of the saints means not only that we will persevere, but that nothing but God's grace can enable us to persevere. The doctrines of grace are a fantastic remedy for pride. Here's a book I would recommend if you want to start thinking about some of these things specifically with regard to pride. A.W. Pink's book, The Sovereignty of God. I think it will blow you out of the water. It it might make you mad initially. (laughs) But afterwards, it's going to cause the sweetness of God's grace to fill your soul. The fifth recommendation given by numerous people is to study the doctrine of sin. I'm not going to dwell on this a lot, but I would encourage another A.W. Pink book. It's Gleanings in Genesis. And if it doesn't make you sick to your stomach as you begin to contemplate the utter ugliness of your sin and how this is so revolting to God, it will at least make you realize we have nothing of which to boast. Sixth, Spend much time in private worship of God, adoring Him for His excellencies. It's impossible to worship God truly and still hold on to pride. And the moment I find pride welling up in my heart, instantly I confess it, I say, tell the Lord, I acknowledge my baseness before Him and I begin to worship His excellency. It provides speedy relief from pride. One of the things that has helped me a great deal in my fight against pride is to read the Puritans. Now, modern writers let sins like this get away. They just can't catch them with their their hooks. They let them get away. But the Puritans, they dig and they dig and they dig and they dig more deeply and they dig until it hurts and they dig until you start weeping. Because they know what man is like. We need to quit reading the sissified books that you get at some of these you know, Christian bookstores out there and start reading some of the Puritan literature that is out there. I'll I tell you what, it'll do three things for you. First of all, the Puritans will expose your heart in a way which very few other books are able to do. They understood the human heart very well. Second, they will speak of the practicalities of God's grace in a way that many moderns just brush over. Um, they knew how to mortify sin. They knew how to grow in grace. They were very practical. They'll give you all kinds of tips. And I especially recommend John Owen on the mortification of sin. Thirdly, they will help you to realize how little you really know. That's humbling all in itself. When I read the Puritans, I just think how stupid I am. (laughs) How could these guys know so much? They're not any older than I am, and yet they were so deeply entrenched in God's Word that God gave them wisdom. He gave them insight. He gave them guidance. It came from His grace but he saw the closeness of their hearts. So I recommend that. And in the same point, I probably should have made a separate point of that. Read the major prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, especially Ezekiel, and pray that God would make those Scriptures part and parcel of your life. Pray those Scriptures into your life. And I think uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are particularly hard on pride. Great homework. Next, let your friends know that they can correct you any time. And when you start thinking about that, you probably have your pride already squirming a little bit inside of you. 
you don't know my friends, Phil. You know, they, they will correct me uh, anytime, and I've got to protect myself against them. But now I say, uh, allow your friends to correct you anytime. If pride is as dangerous as we saw that it is last week, then we ought to be delighted to receive corrections. You read through the Proverbs, you read through the Psalms, and you see these authors recognize the importance of correction. They delighted when their friends corrected them. They said it was like pleasant oil upon their heads. You say, well, they're off the wall when they correct me. Don't even bother correcting their corrections. Even if they're 90% off the wall, just take the corn, throw away the corn cob, but thank them for their correction on the part that was right. Repent of it. Deal with it. We so often feel like we've got to justify ourselves in the things that are wrong. Even if they're totally off the mark, you've got to dig. There's got to be at least a kernel of truth in that correction, and it will do you good if you submit to that. Pride hates correction, and since we hate pride, we need every little bit of anti-kryptonite that we can get into our arsenal. Eighth, find Christian service outside your home to be engaged in. And the less recognition you get, the better. Okay? This starves pride. It helps you to become more God-centered in your service. And as you serve, tell the Lord, Lord, I don't want recognition for this from men. I'm doing this as a love gift to you. Please, let me get through this service without anyone else noticing that I have done this. I want this to be between you and me. One person suggested playing golf, and I just threw that in there for fun. That would actually increase some people's pride, but uh, definitely humble me. (laughs) Eleventh, make it your daily prayer that you recognize that you are dependent upon God for life and breath and all things. Ask Him for wisdom, for grace, for physical and emotional strength, even on the things you think you're already ready for. Say, Lord, I know that you could let me down just like that, and so I ask you for strength, even on the areas that I am strong on. Eleventh, make it your daily prayer that you recognize... Oh, that's where I dealt with that. Twelfth, engage in the spiritual disciplines of Bible reading, memorization, fasting, and prayer. Failing to read the Bible is as clear a statement as you could get. You don't need God's wisdom to govern your affairs. I mean, that is an incredibly proud thing to do to go day after day, week after week, without reading God's instructions and trying to implement it. It's saying, I don't need your wisdom, God. I've got everything that I need. Praying, I mean, not praying, is an incredibly proud statement. It's in effect saying, you know, I can do this on my own. I don't need the Lord's help. Whereas fasting is submitting to God's ways and it's saying, Lord, I am weak. In fact, I feel weak. I'm making myself know my weakness. But more importantly, even though I think this is stupid to fast, Your word has called me to do it, and I am implicitly trusting you. And so I fast, because I believe your word, when it says you will bless fasting, you're going to do it. And so I fast. Hiding God's word in your heart. And what do you say? Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against you. It's going to prevent pride from coming in. So spiritual disciplines need to be engaged in. Thirteenth, whenever you start worrying and, and being fearful, get rid of it. Worry and fear is a form of pride that will rob your day of productivity. Now, I've given sermons on this, and there's books written on it, so I don't need to give this in depth. But in a nutshell, Philippians 4 gives you three areas you need to be disciplined in if you are to overcome worry and fear. First of all, it says you need to discipline your prayer life and stop moaning and groaning to God in your prayers. He hates that moaning and griping and complaining. Instead, he says, in everything, we're to be thankful to him in our prayers. And then when we pray, praying with faith that God's will will be accomplished, we've got to be disciplined in our prayers. Secondly, we've got to be disciplined in our thinking. Instead of constantly thinking and brooding and fretting and, and uh, feeling self-pity and bitterness in our hearts, he says, put that off. Meditate on those things that are noble and good and pure. So you've got to discipline your thinking. And then thirdly, you've got to discipline your habits. In other words, you've got to be engaged in the things that God calls you to do before you engage in your pleasures. Your responsibilities got to be ordered, but your habits have got to be disciplined. And he guarantees if you, in Philippians 4, you put those three disciplines into place, he says you're, you're going to conquer your worry. 
And he says, the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Here's another humbling thing to do. At the end of every day, transfer glory to God for everything great you have done. Tell the Lord it was His grace, His health, His breath, His life, the hands that you used you know, to do these great things. God gave you those hands and you're so thankful to the Lord for all that He has done. Fifteenthly, if there is such a, a, a Lee... <laughs> Embrace sleep as a symbol of your creaturely limitations. I used to hate sleep. Think, what a waste of time. I just kept carving back, back, back till I just became so sick. But I embrace sleep now as in a recognition, Lord, this means I'm not God and I'm not going to try to act like God. Here's what C.J. Mahaney said in his book on humility. He gave a, a sample prayer that he prays at the end of his day. Father, Thank you for this gift. And he's speaking of the gift of of sleep. Thank you for this gift. The fact that I'm so tired is a reminder that I am a creature and only you are the creator. Only you neither slumber nor sleep. Well, for me, sleep is something I cannot go without. Thank you for this gracious, humbling, refreshing gift. Now, in conclusion, let me say that God's call to meekness is not a call to a powerless, joyless Christianity or for that matter, a life of mediocrity. On the contrary, Moses was said to be the meekest man in all the earth at that time, and he was the greatest man in all of the earth. David said to God, You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your meekness has made me great. Meekness does not do away with greatness. The very opposite is the true. Just think in sports. It's the meek runner or the meek swimmer or the meek gymnast who submits to his coach's mandates that becomes great, right? And people who do not are are consigned to mediocrity. The meek stallion is the one who follows his master's whims, whatever his master wants, and his master uses him for greatness. And the meek Christian is the one who is best qualified to be more than conquerors through Christ to inherit the earth. Zephaniah 2.3 says, Seek meekness. If you're a non-Christian... How do you seek meekness? Say, Lord, enable me to humble my neck before you and to say, without you, I cannot be saved. Without you, I have nothing. And God says, if you will humble your neck before Him, reach out for salvation, Psalm 149.4 says, He will beautify the meek with salvation. If you're joyless, seek meekness from God's gracious throne. Isaiah 29.19 says, the meek also shall increase their joy. Are you lost and confused? Seek meekness. Psalm 25 promises the meek will He guide. Meekness is the remedy to a powerless, joyless, mediocre Christianity. Seek meekness. Amen. Father, we recognize in our own hearts the presence of pride as we looked at the Scriptures last week and uh, we look at the opposite this week. Our hearts cry out to You and we say, Father, please spare us from this uh, kryptonite of of pride which can mess up so much of our spiritual lives. Help us to put that off and to put on meekness as a garment. We need Your Holy Spirit. We need all that Jesus died uh, to provide for us. And so by faith, we lay claim to the meekness that is part of our inheritance. We pray that You would give it to us in great measure and help us to be the tamed of God. We love You. We want to grow in our love, our usefulness, our service to You, as well as in our joy and in our confidence of service. And so we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.